When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi friends, Louise here. Before we get into an incredible episode, I wanted to just check in to say hi. And if your heart is hurting, you are not alone. Heartbreak is something that we have all gone through and that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And the same thing goes for loss and grief. For me, the most painful moments of loss and grief are etched into my mind. When I found out that my grandma had passed and I sat in the car crying my eyes out alone on a dark school night or the cold Saturday morning in December three years ago when I woke up warm and safe in bed to open my eyes to my phone ringing my boyfriend on the other end of the line telling me that the relationship was over cold and dead the last time I would speak to him for the next three years of my life. While the biggest grief moments of my life have been when I was younger, the heartbreak moments have all very much been in my adulthood. And boy, oh boy, have I experienced heartbreak. That first week, I could hardly peel myself off the floor. And the next six months were a total blur of trying to just get through the days and make sense of why I was grieving so hard and feeling so much pain. I'd been through breakups before and always made it through. And in fact, most of the time I'd broken up with them. But something about this one was the darkest one yet. It hit me so deep. I couldn't stop thinking about him. I couldn't stop asking why. I would pore over pictures and letters and text messages and things he'd said about how he would never love anyone the way he'd loved me and all of the references he had made about the future. The silence was excruciating and listening to today's episode, I now understand why. 
When we go through deep pain and deep rejection, it is so shocking to the body that we are actually experiencing a deep biological reaction as well as a psychological one. In the next few months, therapy saved me, but looking back, it really focused on the psychological and the conscious mind only. What it didn't help me with was this biological experience that was still rattling me. The stress response, the dysregulated nervous system, and the neural wiring that was firing repeatedly, thinking of him all of the time. I felt like I was trying to move forward, but I just kept thinking of him and it felt like I couldn't move forward without answers, without connection and without closure. With what I know now and what I learned in today's episode, I now understand that we don't actually need closure to move forward. Psychologically, closure may help provide you with some answers, some safety that they don't hate you in the way that you often think they do post-breakup and that what you shared was real and was special for both of you. But the closure that I was obsessed over getting, and that ultimately I never got until he reappeared three years later, was never going to rebuild the neural pathways that I needed to get over heartbreak. I learned the hard way that this was a journey I had to go on all by myself. But trust me, the Louise of three years ago would have fought you on that. I was so desperate for closure, explanations, and any emotion from him that if you had told me that I could solve and heal this on my own, I'm not sure I would have believed you. I wish I had found self-hypnosis sooner. Because while digging into the psychological is incredibly important, it's the cognitive flexibility that we need in our brain to be able to look at the situation and the heartbreak from another perspective that can actually help us to move forward faster. We talk all the time about neuroplasticity, neural rewiring, nervous system regulation, and how you can change your state. But what many people don't understand is that these are the things that we actually have to do to get over heartbreak and to get out of that box that we're stuck in. But no one ever teaches us how to do these things. We need to build new pathways that allow us to stop rerunning the old wiring that has become so deeply ingrained in us. But those pathways can only be formed when we're told how to do it and when we're calm, when we're not in a self-fulfilling stress cycle and when we have enough brain-derived nootrophic factor, a key molecule that is involved in building new neurons in the brain. And self-hypnosis can help with all of these things. I don't know about you, but when people would tell me to try and set new habits or to meditate when I was heartbroken, it felt like it was really unhelpful advice. But with self-hypnosis, it feels stronger, more powerful, more impactful and more influential because it goes to the root of our biology. Like it's really doing something and helping to fix what ultimately feels broken. What I've learned from today's episode with the incredible Dr. David Spiegel is that to move forward, you have to take your body and mind into a new state where it's plastic to start to build new beliefs that can start to outweigh and overrule our old ones. And it's not just moving through heartbreak, loss or grief that self-hypnosis can help with. It can also help us to sleep better, breathe better, build new habits, build new pathways and ultimately start to build a new future, a new you and ultimately a new brain. I am so excited to get into today's episode with the iconic Stanford professor, Dr. David Spiegel, founder of the Reverie app, as we talk through the mechanisms of how self-hypnosis can help with healing your heartbreak. Dr. Spiegel is a globally renowned, world-leading psychiatrist and one of the most revered experts in the field who has hypnotized over 7 
thousand patients in his career. He's created Reverie, a self-hypnosis app where you can access his sessions anywhere at any time. And if you haven't already listened to Dr. Spiegel on the Huberman Lab podcast, once you finish with this one, you should head over there because it is an incredible listen and I learned so much. As you all probably know by now, one of the key drivers at Open House is to bring help and insight to those who might not be able to get access to -to one-to-one therapy. And Reverie is on a similar mission. They are here to make self-hypnosis available to anyone who needs it. And our open house neuroscientist, M on the Brain, is also a big fan of Reverie. She personally uses the Reverie hypnosis tracks to break her habit of procrastination and getting into the present moment to fight her ADHD, as well as helping with better sleep. The app also covers how to quit habits like smoking and vaping, how to control pain. We actually talk about that in today's episode. How to breathe better, which is something that I've been focusing a lot more on lately and how to be more present. For so long on the podcast, we've been talking about the importance of doing the work. And today we start to tell you how you can go deep and how you can actively start to rewire to change your future. The truth is I wouldn't wish a breakup, loss or grief on my worst enemy. But what I would wish for is that everyone can have an access to a solution like this if they do have to go through those things. Because being told to wait it out and hope that time heals all sometimes is just not enough, especially when we're in the darkness. Reverie have kindly gifted a full access two-week free trial of the app to anyone who listens to the Open House podcast. All you have to do is head to the show notes of this episode so you can download Reverie and redeem this trial. Most of all, I want you to know that the pain will pass. I have lived this journey and I didn't have support solutions like this, yet I still made it to the other side. So even though it may not feel like it now, in the middle of the darkness, the pain and the confusion, I promise you there will be moments of light and hope and grace and even happiness. Slowly, the number of I'm okay moments are going to start to outweigh your I can't do this moments. And before you know it, there will come a day that you'll be standing at that kitchen sink realizing that it's been days or even weeks since you last thought of them. Maybe that feels impossible for you right now, but let me believe it for you, even if you don't. Most of all, Reverie can help you get there, and all of Open House is right behind you. Now, let's get into the episode and see what Dr. David Spiegel has to say about all things self-hypnosis. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. David Spiegel here with me today. In true dedication, he is pushing through jet lag to share what is going to be an incredibly powerful episode. So I'm sure that everyone listening is with me and saying thank you so much for joining us, even though you are not feeling your best. I'm just so excited to get into what we're going to be talking about today. And I thought that the perfect place to start would be just asking you if you could just really explain to me what self-hypnosis actually is. Because I think we need to dispel this swinging pendulum image that so many people still associate with self-hypnosis or just hypnosis in general. Well, you're right, Louise. A hundred years ago when automobiles were first invented, States were passing laws against windshield wipers on cars. And the reason they were was that they were remembering the old dangling watch idea that that's how you hypnotize someone. And they were afraid that drivers would go into hypnotic states by following the path of the windshield wipers. Well, it didn't happen. Hypnosis 
is a state of highly focused attention. It's like getting so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching the movie and you enter the imagined world. So you narrow the focus of attention. You put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. And it enables you to have more power and control over what you want to attend to and by inference, what you want to ignore. So it's a natural state of learning. It's the kind of state that all eight-year-olds are in trance all the time. You call your kid in for dinner and he doesn't hear you. He's out playing ball. This ability to have what we call a self-transforming imagination where the, the reality you're in is the reality that there seems to be. And it's an intensive way of learning that we all have to some degree, some of us retain it throughout our adult lives, some begin to lose it as we have the misfortune of having to grow up. But it's a state of very useful, highly focused attention. I love the way that you use the word intensive there and how you reference like helping you to forget the things you don't want to focus on and really pull yourself into the things that you do want to develop and grow into. Because today we're talking about heartbreak and we all know that when we're heartbroken, all we want to do is forget about the pain and just put this person behind us and start to focus on the future. But it can feel so impossible. I'd love to understand why you believe that this self-hypnosis is so powerful that more people need to be doing it. The worst thing you can tell somebody is don't think about purple elephants. That's what you're going to think about. So our brains are very good at redirecting attention when you're focusing on what you're for. And they're not so good at telling yourself, don't think about this because that's what you will think about. So the capacity to focus intently carries with it an ability to truly laser-like direct your attention where you want it to go and thereby put outside of awareness things you'd rather not be thinking about. And that can certainly apply to heartbreak as well. The purple elephant comment is just so perfect because we all know that when we're heartbroken, it's like we can't stop thinking about them. And that's why I'm so excited that we can use this self-hypnosis to help people through these stages that are just so difficult. Like it feels like you can't move through them. And I always believe that when you understand what is actually going on with something, it can help you move through it quicker. So I would love to ask you when we're heartbroken, what is going on biologically? Well, it's a kind of grieving process that involves the brain reshaping the pathways that it uses to contemplate where you've been and where you might be going. And, you know, we have a saying in, in neurobiology that neurons that fire together wire together. We're constantly reshaping our brains. When we form new relationships, when you get attracted to somebody new, suddenly you're devoting a tremendous amount of energy to making connections to this new object of affection. So you're building a series of connections in the brain that you're strengthening to say, boy, it's fun to think about him and what might happen or what she and I might do together. And it tends to therefore attract resources away from other possibilities, other people you might meet, other directions your life might take. And the more you do that, the more your brain builds in that development and creates associations to what might happen and how pleasurable it might be. The problem is that when something goes wrong and that relationship isn't working, you're still replaying the familiar channels. You're still doing the same thing over and over again. And by inference, you're not 
thinking about what life might be like if you headed in a different direction, if you met somebody new the next day. You're using your brain more to focus on what you've lost than what you might gain. And so part of it is that as you build one set of connections, you're precluding the development of other sets of connections. And one of the ways in which we can help to free ourselves from a loss is to acknowledge what you've gotten from this person, the happiness you've had together, the problems you've had together, and allowing yourself to think beyond it. If you think about what were the good things I got from him, but what were the things that I just assumed forget about and not be so interested in? So your brain is making choices all the time about what to connect to, what you like, and also maybe what you didn't like and what you would like to try being different with. And so that capacity to remain cognitively flexible, to see things from more than one point of view is part of the process of grieving a loss and starting over. I love what you said about how your brain is making choices all the time. And that's what I love about self-hypnosis is the power that you can really go deep and start to create those new neurons that fire together create those new neurons that wire together and create those new stories. Because in that moment, you feel like I'm never going to love again. No one's ever going to choose me. I'm going to be on my own forever. You know, not everyone, but a lot of people that listen to this podcast. And in that moment, it feels like new beliefs and new stories are impossible. Very intensity with which you focus on the object of desire kind of puts a barrier around the possibility of being intrigued by somebody else who's walking down the street or somebody else you met at a party or something like that. We sort of make this hierarchy of attention and say, this is the one I want. And instead, if you can see psychologically what you have enjoyed and taken from that person, but also be rational enough to see, well, you know, He was attractive in some ways, but he was kind of self-involved and also seemed to have an eye for three other people at the same time that he was supposedly talking with me. He may not be the ideal. So you can get to a point where you can step back and say, here's the good stuff. Here's what I got from him. Here's what I enjoyed. But do I want to spend the rest of my life with somebody for whom I have to deal with those sorts of problems as well? So it's a way of not being so unified in the attraction that you can't take perspective on what the whole situation is and think, you know what, there might be someone better out there for me. And is that what you mean through the term cognitive flexibility? You know, working with the brain to give it the opportunity to step into new areas, stories and beliefs. Is that what cognitive flexibility is? Absolutely. It's a way of not assigning all positive values to one situation, but saying, well, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages in in different ones. And I'm sure, you know, at a party, you've had a situation where you kind of fell for a guy and later on your girlfriend say, well, you know, I, I saw him being exactly that friendly with three other people at the same party that you may have politely ignored as you got intrigued with him. Sometimes you get caught up with the good stuff and pleasantly ignore the other things that your friends might say, hey, I don't know about that guy. seems a little sketchy to me. Why would you want to hang out with him? But at the time you're taken. Now, to some extent, we form relationships with people. They can be very meaningful. We can forgive 
the people we love their foibles and their weaknesses. But at the same time, there are times when you want to remain flexible, when you want to say, well, there are advantages and disadvantages. Do you think it's fair to say that self-hypnosis can also help with taking off the rose-tinted goggles? Because, you know, when we go through heartbreak, we look back and we almost sometimes can pedestal that person, even if they've hurt us or even if objectively they weren't the right person for us. Do you think that the new pathways that Reverie's created for heartbreak and loss can help to bring objectivity into the situations when we're having these rose-tinted spectacles looking backwards? Right. Well, Woody Allen once said that my problem in my marriage was that I was always putting my wife under a pedestal. And you have to recognize that there is something about falling in love with someone in which you forgive them almost anything. You're tending to narrow your focus of attention, to focus on the good stuff and kind of put the bad stuff outside. You know, well, it doesn't matter that much. I can love him or her anyway. And so the thing that gets you stuck in difficult relationships sometimes is that you are too forgiving of the things that maybe are not so acceptable and too attracted by the things that that might be. And sometimes, sadly, that comes from feeling inside that you have to make up for your own deficiencies. Well, of course, he's not as polite as he should be because I don't always say the right thing and why should he be? And when you sink into this kind of rationalization for why you should accept things that really are not acceptable, you're using your own insecurity to make up for things that are really the problem with the person you're engaged with. Do you think it's fair to say that self-hypnosis can also help you build your confidence and alleviate and heal those deficiencies as part of also healing from the heartbreak. Have you worked with people that have really seen changes in their confidence as well? There's a part of the brain we call the default mode network. It's in the back of the brain. It's a part of the brain that is involved in self-reflection. When you're not doing anything in particular, you're just thinking about who you are and what people think of you. And so it's not uncommon for people who are not being treated well to think, I said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and I didn't mean to insult him, but I did. And so that's why he's angry at me. Rather than saying, you know, he's kind of a self-absorbed guy who doesn't take anybody criticizing him in any way whatsoever, and he'll lash out if that happens. And if you make excuses for that, you're likely to put up with a lot more of that kind of mistreatment rather than say, I don't need this. There are lots of good fish in the sea. There are other people I can find who are less likely to do that. And where hypnosis can be helpful is to give yourself a quiet space within yourself to reflect on what's happening and see it from both sides of you. Uh, I often find it helpful for my patients using self-hypnosis to act as if they were the mother to their own child to say, how do you feel when he says or does this? And to be a little more open to your own natural emotional reactions to it, rather than having to engage with him at the time and say, you know, is this what I really want for the rest of my life or not? Is this something that I deserve to have happen to me? Or is it something that I enjoy? Or is it something that I could really better do without? And so it's a way of kind of having an interpersonal relationship with yourself 
to try out what it feels like to be with him. You know, the way a good friend would say to you, well, you know, the last three times I saw you with this guy, you didn't look so happy at the end of the evening. You know, what's going on? Well, you can say that to yourself. You can reflect and just sort of relive an evening you had and say, well, how did it feel? Was it what I wanted? Is it the way I want it to be? And sort of do your own internal rehearsal and reach a more independent conclusion about how you felt and is it worth it or not. Yeah. And I think that with how busy life is, notifications everywhere, calendars, travel, running around all over the place, it's very hard to step into that moment or the quiet space, as you said, to even be able to start to objectively look at a situation. And then on top of that, you're dealing with all of the feelings. So I think it's really helpful to understand how self-hypnosis can just help to give you that space that you can step into where you can maybe see the truth for what it is when you step inside that quiet space. I'd love it if you could just tell me what's going on during hypnosis and how does it contribute to us having that quieter space? Sure, Louise. There are some major sections of the brain involved in hypnosis. And part of it is what we call the salience network. It's called the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus. It's like a C inverted in the inside of your brain. And the front part is the salience network. And it tells you whether things are going the way they ought to or maybe not. And so if you suddenly hear a loud noise in the U.S., half the time it's a gunshot, you better be careful. But it hijacks your attention and it gets you to pay attention to something else that might be a threat. In hypnosis, you turn down activity in that region. You're basically saying... I'm not going to let other things distract me unless it's really dangerous and they need to. And so it allows you to have absorbing open judgment, to engage yourself in things the way you do in a good movie. Have you ever gotten so caught up in a good movie, you forget you're watching a movie, you're just in the imagined world. And that's enjoyable. You know, you just sink yourself in it. Well, hypnosis is a way of allowing you to immerse yourself in situations without judging them. The second thing that happens is the executive control network, it's the prefrontal cortex, is highly connected to the insula, which is a little island-like part of the brain that allows you to control mind-body relationships. And so you can control things going on in your body. Pain is a construct. It's not simply a sensation. So you get input from your body and you decide whether it's really going to bother you or not. And we're very good at controlling pain. And that's why for most of human history, women have given birth to children without chemical anesthesia by usually standing rather than lying, allowing the weight of their body to naturally help the baby emerge from the body. And that's what my wife, Helen Blau, did when our 10-pound first child was born without chemical anesthesia. She wanted to be in control of the process. She was. So she imagined she was floating in Lake Tahoe, cool, tingling, and it felt different. So you can transform sensation in hypnosis. And the third thing that is really interesting about it is you turn down activity in the posterior part of that cingulate cortex, the back of your brain, that is a part of the brain that is active when you're not doing much, but you're just evaluating who you are and what people think of you. But it's a constraining part that keeps you thinking you must be the way you are. And one of the coolest things about hypnosis is 
It allows you to try out being someone different and see what it feels like. And so hypnosis is a kind of playground for trying out being a different you and see what happens. And so it gives you a kind of flexibility, a way to manage your perception, to control pain, to control your body in ways that you thought you couldn't, and to try out being different and see what happens. Why do we have this ability? Well, if you have any eight-year-old kids, you know that they're in trances most of the time. You call them in for dinner, they don't hear you. Work and play are all the same thing for children. That's why they learn so wonderfully. And I think we evolved to have this kind of flexible input that we now call hypnosis because kids have large but largely empty brains and we got to fill them with stuff and they learn very easily and playing for them is all about learning too and as we grow up we focus more on logic and reason and being careful about what we acquire as new information but many of us creative artists for example actors have a way of being in that playful mode of enjoying new information and playing with it that helps them learn better and easily and perform better and easily. And so I think it's a skill that it's good if we can hang on to because it's very useful for continuing to shape our experience and make ourselves more available to novelty and enjoy it. I think it's really profoundly important, some of the words you use there, like flexible and playful, because I think that when we're heartbroken, we don't feel like there's any flexibility. We certainly don't feel playful. And if my last breakup was anything to go by, it was a very dark experience for me, which is why I think it's so powerful to really understand how these pathways can take you deeper into these trance-like states, like you said, to really make lasting changes. And it does feel really hard to be someone different. And I think that's why we get obsessed with the past. And I know that, well, I'm lucky that my ex-boyfriend did not have social media. So this isn't one that I directly relate to, but I know that people message me all the time saying, I can't stop looking at their social media. I can't stop looking at the photos we had together. So I'd love to understand what is going on in the brain during that withdrawal phase when people feel so driven to just keep looking at the past? Well, I think part of the problem, Louise, is that you kind of fill up the space in your default mode network and the part that defines who you are with all these, not just selfies, but with pair photos of you and him doing this that was great and that was great. And of course, it's laced with the sadness of the subsequent recognition that it didn't work out he met someone else or things went wrong and you have trouble then reconstructing well who am i if i'm not with him because all the photos are contaminated with this other guy that you're no longer so happy standing next to and if the flexibility you need is the capacity to see yourself being someone different i was happy with him and what you tend not to see there is I'm the kind of woman who could attract somebody like that, who could enjoy romantic times with someone. And the implicit message is, if I could do it with him, I could do it with someone else. He's not the only human on the planet. And so what you want to be able to do and what hypnosis can help you do is be flexible enough 
to see the event from a different perspective. I'm capable of enjoying beautiful romantic situations. And if I'm capable of doing it with him, I'm capable of doing it with someone else. So you want to be able to restructure the situation you're in. And it is genuinely painful. You know, you give of yourself mentally and physically and you allow yourself to become very close to someone. It is painful if they can see and know and feel that much about you and yet let go and say, oh, there's someone better. That really hurts. But at the same time, you can grieve that pain, but say it's also a life lesson. And if I'm going to have an enjoyable life, I want it with someone who values me more than this guy did. And it's not that he didn't value you. It's just he, it wasn't good enough. And the main thing is to think, whose failure was this? Because the natural tendency is to look inward. You know yourself better than anyone else. Well, you know, I forgot his birthday or I did this or I did that or I didn't do this or that. But the mysterious part is on the other end of the equation. What was with him that he couldn't value who you were? and all the things you did to be loving with him and all the attractive things. And it enables you to step back. Sometimes I advise people in hypnosis to be your best friend and look at the two of you together, the way your friends do, and say, what do you notice about what's going on there? Do you notice that you're looking at him a whole lot more than he's looking at you? That you remember to celebrate his birthday, but he forgot to celebrate yours. Get a different perspective on the same situation and say, look, it's not that there weren't wonderful things. It wasn't that we didn't have wonderful times together, but you know, there could be something better out there. And that's again, the cognitive flexibility of saying it was what it was. It showed that I'm capable of loving somebody deeply. I had a friend who was an excellent psychotherapist who was treating a woman whose husband had left her and he said to her, and at a particularly cruel moment at the time that they were breaking up, he said, I never really loved you, which, you know, that's the old knife in the heart kind of thing. And she turned to him and she said, well, that's really sad for you because I really loved you very much. And I thought, well, good for you. You got it. You got it. That What she was saying was, I'm capable of loving you. And it hurts me that you're not capable of loving me. But you know what? That's your problem, not mine. So sometimes people can come to that sort of perspective as they grieve a loss. Oh, 100%. That was powerful. Thank you. And at Open House, we call that the 100 meter analogy. Taking yourself out of the situation and really looking at it as if you were a totally different person, you can really see those moments like, oh my goodness, that's awful. You know, no one should do that to anyone. I think that to consider becoming someone else which you can do with self-hypnosis and with the app, you also need to start new habits, right? So I'd love to talk about neuroplasticity because dependent on how long you are with someone, a lot of your habits and your life is going to have been with them. So you need to start creating new things for you, new habits, and it's a life on your own to begin with before you meet someone new. The idea is basically, as I mentioned, that neurons that fire together, wire together, that part of the way the brain, which is an incredibly complex machine, works is that there are axons and dendrites. There are parts of the the neuron, the neural cell that grow out and then have these little dendrites that connect to other neural cells. So they create patterns of interconnection that allow for rapid 
communication among specific networks of neurons. And so we respond to those patterns, but we also help to create them. So when taxi drivers in London, before we all had ways and things like that, they actually had bigger portions of the parietal cortex in their brain to map out the increasingly, crazily complex street patterns in England. Their brains had them stored so that they could find where they had to go. And in the same way, we do that with relationships with people. There are sort of go-to steps that we take when we're meeting someone, we're getting to know them. We decide what to tell them about ourselves and what not to tell them about ourselves. And so we build these networks. But one of the things that happens, the reason we need to sleep is that if we kept building new networks of relationships and didn't reshape them, our brains would outgrow our skulls. You know, they just keep growing and couldn't do that. So the brain has to remodel itself. And we do that as we change our patterns of behavior. And so that's an ability that we have. And hypnosis can be very helpful in focusing the direction of your change in patterns. And so you can pay intense attention to some problems and some people and less attention to others. And we do that as we shape our friendship networks. We focus on arranging a time to see somebody we want to see, and we tend to forget people that we thought, yeah, it'd be a good idea to get to know them again, but we don't. So our brains are reshaping our intention, our commitment, our perception over time. And that's an adaptive process. It helps you build a brain that focuses on doing what you want to do and not on what you don't want to do. So the capacity in hypnosis in particular to focus on certain problems and focus away from others is something that can be profoundly adaptive. So if you catastrophize pain when you feel it, oh my God, I broke my ankle. Oh no, it's terrible. My life is over. You can devote a lot of brain energy to everything that's now wrong with your body, or you can devote brain energy to saying, I'm going to concentrate on that sore ankle being immersed in ice water, cool, tingling, and numb, filter the hurt out of the pain. And you can literally reduce the amount of pain your brain feels. And you can have it as a way of soothing rather than stimulating discomfort. And it's an efficient way of using our brains that we were evolved to utilize if we use them correctly. Oh, so powerful. I mean, I wish I knew what I'm learning from you today, what I needed three years ago, because the thought of not having to be in those intense states of pain where it felt like there was no way out, if I could just download this app and start to really just commit a little bit of time to working with my brain rather than it working against me. That's exactly right, Louise. I've used hypnosis, I figure, in my career with about 7,000 people, which is a lot of people. I feel good about that. And most of them have been helped by it, but I can't do it with everyone. And it occurred to me that using app-based technology, we can make this available to almost anybody who's got a smartphone. And I used to think maybe it wouldn't be as good as my actually being there with a patient. And then it occurred to me that when people are having trouble getting back to sleep at three in the morning, it's probably a good thing that I'm not in their bedroom with them, helping them get back to sleep. And so I realized that a lot of the idea, since all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis, you don't need somebody there dangling a watch. It's an opportunity to have people 
have available to themselves ways of better using their brain. This three-pound organ on the top of our bodies is our major evolutionary advantage. You know, we're not that strong, we're not that big, we're not that fast, but we think and perceive very well. And it doesn't come with a user's manual. There's no reason on earth why we should know everything the brain can do just because we happen to have one. And so using your brain to focus on what you're for, to modulate perception, to work through loss, like the loss of a relationship, can be a powerful tool and one that we can use to help people manage distress much better. And it makes me sad that people are poisoning their lungs and their bodies by smoking cigarettes when they could use hypnosis to respect and protect their body, to recognize that you would never put into a baby's lungs what you're putting into your body's lungs, but your body's as dependent on you as your baby is. So focus on respecting and protecting your body, to eat with respect, to enjoy, get all the pleasure you can out of the food you eat and stop eating when you're full, to handle stress by starting from the bottom up, from getting your body comfortable and then dealing with the stressor that tends to make your body uncomfortable. I think that's one of the most powerful things about what you've built and what you continue to build. I know that you have launched these heartbreak, loss and grief pathways, which are so powerful. But also, like you said, there's so many other things that are available in the app. And you've spoken about pain a lot. And I have had a chronic pain disorder since I was 18 after going through a big, big trauma. I can't wait to get more into those pathways to help me. And anyone that's thinking about giving birth, they're going to be listening to this thinking, yes, this is everything I need. I want to be floating in Lake Tahoe. You've mentioned stress and we've spoken about confidence. And I think that's what's so exciting is that ultimately, you're helping people build new brains and really they can choose what that brain looks like for them depending on what it is they want to go towards rather than what they've been stuck in. And I think just tying this back to the piece around heartbreak, let's talk about grieving because I know so many people say, oh, I have to get over the heartbreak before I start dating again, or I have to get over the grief before I can go back to the old me. What are your thoughts on grieving? Um, Well, Louise, I don't think it's one or the other. There's no law that says you have to go through all the misery of getting a divorce lawyer and getting out of a relationship before you could see the possibility that there are other people out there who could be interesting. And so I would say part of the process of grief is mourning the loss, mourning the fact that you put a lot of your time and effort and yourself into building a relationship. But it doesn't automatically mean that there are no other possibilities out there that could perhaps become pleasurable even better. When you talk to people who have gotten out of bad relationships, they'll tell you, what in God's name was I thinking when I stayed with that person for four years? So at the time, you don't think that, but later on you do. So very often it's a matter of balancing and, and giving the devil his due, saying, you know, there were things about this relationship that made me feel good. There were moments of intimacy. There were times when he showed concern. But, you know, he always did it in a very abstract, not very romantic way. And here's this guy coming along who is romantic, who's loving, who's different. So it's not, you know, you got to go through five years of misery before you can have some pleasure. It's being flexible enough to interlock the two. 
to say, you know, maybe there is something better out there. And maybe if I can find a way to responsibly let go of the relationship I have, there are other possibilities out there that could be even more pleasurable. And it doesn't always work out that way, but it can. So I would say part of what hypnosis can help you do because it's so focused is you can focus on the potential for other good moments, even when you're stuck in the middle of a bunch of bad moments. It isn't all or none. And that's the narrow focus of attention where you can picture the pleasure even at a time when you're realizing that you've got to unstick yourself from a situation that is not so full of pleasure. So think of it as a changing skill. It's a kind of screwdriver that helps you unlock the things that make you stuck and open up the possibilities that might be more pleasurable. And you don't have to do it all at once. You can balance the good and the bad in the current relationship and the good possibilities and the problems in the future ones. And that's the cognitive flexibility that our brains give us and that we need to take advantage of. If people are interested, Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I, it's available. See, see what it feels like to just focus your attention on being a different person. I love that. And I also just really love the, this concept of forward movement. You know, you referenced being stuck and it being this skill almost that can take you on that journey of movement. I know recently you did a New York Times interview on acute disassociation. I went through this firsthand where my ex-boyfriend, he broke up with me. And then three years later, he reached out and he reappeared. And when I spoke with him, he basically said, I've actually been disassociated this whole period. The pain was so intense for me. And so I really learned a lot about this disassociation. Well, dissociation is kind of the other side of absorption. Dissociation means sort of I'm redefining myself as somewhat disconnected from that part of my experience. And I'm going to focus on what I want to focus for and just put outside of awareness things that I no longer want to be in consciousness of. We can't always do that completely, but sometimes we can to a surprising degree. And people who go through difficult physical experiences often do that, that they don't realize how badly they've been hurt. Football player breaks his ankle in a game and doesn't notice until the game's over. He can really help you disconnect from things you'd rather not pay attention to. And so there's no one-on-one -on -one experience between all the input that comes into your brain and what you decide to pay attention to. And so some people deal with loss by just putting it outside of conscious awareness. And in grief, you think, I can't imagine living without my parents or my partner. And yet you find that you do. There are times when you're not preoccupied with that. And that's another skill the brain has in its ability to focus in on things you want to attend to and put outside of conscious awareness things you just assume not think about all the time. Now, sometimes people do that in traumatic situations where they just feel themselves disconnected from something they really don't want to engage in. Dissociation is kind of the other side of absorption. So the absorption is getting engaged in something new to see things from more than one point of view, allowing you to immerse yourself in situations without judging them. And that's, again, the cognitive flexibility of saying, it was what it was. It showed that I'm capable of loving somebody deeply. And it enables you to step back to acknowledge what you've gotten from this person, the happiness you've had together, 
the problems you've had together and allowing yourself to think beyond it. I think that reverie and everything you've created and self-hypnosis can ultimately help your brain work for you. Because so many of us feel like it's constantly working against us. We're being bombarded by thoughts and feelings and we just can't get a break. And actually to make friends with your brain is really about deciding like, which pathways do I want? What beliefs do I want? What stories do I want? And how can I get there? And I think that some of us don't feel like we have the resources to actually change our brain, to actually change our biology, to actually change our beliefs. But this is what Reverie does. This is what self-hypnosis does. So everything about the app and the journey and the website will all be linked in the show notes for everyone who's listening, everyone who wants to head over, download it, give it a try. Do you have any final lasting pieces of advice for anyone going through heartbreak? Or do you think you've given everyone enough insight for today? Well, I'll tell you, Louise, I think you came up with a great line that I will unblushingly steal from you. Make friends with your brain. That's a great line. And it's true. And you're not condemned to any one mental state. And as you learn to make friends with your brain, it will make friends with you. You can learn to focus on what you're for and on what you want. Use it to build the future, not just grieve the past. And it's a powerful tool for doing that. And we all have one. Take full advantage of it. Thank you so much for your insight and giving people hope that they're going to be okay and that there are ways that they can move through this and they can move forward and they are not going to be stuck in pain forever. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. David, and I will hopefully speak to you very soon. I hope so. Take care. Thank you, Louise. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Silias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.